Very excited to be back together, hanging out with you golf uh, nuts and nerds. Uh, welcome to Swing Thoughts. Swing Thoughts. Swing Thoughts. Uh, brought to you by... <laughs> it just sounded weird there for a second. Swing Thoughts. <laughs> welcome to Swing Thoughts. I am your robot host. Uh, my name's Howard. Tim's here. Brought to you by uh, TaylorMade and Adidas. Uh, great to be uh, hanging out with Tim O'Connor for uh, many years, the uh, mental performance coach at the Glen Abbey Golf Academy, and um, for uh, for quite some time, the head coach of the Guelph uh, Gryffindors. Was it Gryffindors or is it Hufflepuff? No, it wasn't Hufflepuff. No, no. But you know what? Here we are, already a formerly. <laughs> Hey, listen, man. Going on laurels. Well, he he did this, but he used to do this. Hmm. Now he's just doing this. Well, interpret it as you will. <laughs> these are your these are your credentials, your credenzas. Um, uh, listen, <clears throat> this is a casual golf uh, chat, and uh, we appreciate. You know, we don't really ask our audience. Uh, we don't really ask anything of you. I mean. We'd like a little feedback. We don't really get much feedback. Why is that, you think? Oh, I think people have more important things to do in their lives. Like bring up their children, uh, make money, um, see if they can stop blocking their seven irons. I don't know. Well, anyway, if you'd give us a little feedback, <clears throat> maybe you'd uh, that'd be great. We'd get some participation. You could like us on Facebook and, of course, leave a review, uh, whatever you like. Uh, last time we talked, we had Mike. Martz. I always get his Mike Martz. Mike Martz, and uh, you were taking some some lessons. Uh, have you taken any since? No. All right. No, uh, we're meeting about every two weeks, and uh, so I'm going to see him again on Friday. You know, maybe, you know what? I am mistaken. Yes, I did. After our last time, I did meet with him. And <laughs> okay. it's really cool. I just, I, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. That's uh, fine. It's all these old people things, you know? You lose your nouns after a certain stage. Well, listen, man, I saw a picture conversation. of you. I saw a picture of you uh, playing bass in a punk band. Nothing old about that, my friend. <laughs> and then well, I saw another picture of you this week on Facebook where you're wearing a suit addressing, a, addressing an audience. And I'm like, who is the real Tim O'Connor? <laughs> it's a mystery. Um, mm. Uh, so yeah, I saw Mike and it was really interesting. Like we've settled. So last year, uh, draw was my shot. Yep. Draw was my shot. Nope. Not anymore. <laughs> Fade is my shot. It's just so much easier for my body to produce it. It, it just, it, Mike was saying, you know, it looks like you're working hard to make this draw happen, but the fade just is much easier. And, um, it just seems to make a ton of sense. I have a better chance of hitting it solid and also, there just seems to be more fair way to work with. Oh, yeah. With a fade. So. <clears throat> well, and, and the uh, mistake, the fade mistake, you know, the famous Lee Trevino line, you yeah, can talk to exactly. a fade. You know, that mistake of over fading it generally doesn't put you in the same peril as over hooking it. And most amateurs, we don't really over hook it. We just turn it into a a shut-faced pull hook, you know, where, you know, expert pro players, those guys will overdraw, 
you know, because their path or whatever is better. But I love that for you, man. And you, it wasn't just last year that you've been drawing it. I, I met you four years ago. And, you know, other than that first sort of shanky nine holes we played. Oh, you had to bring that up. <laughs> Don't stop it. No, I, just, I just love that. It's like our first. Me and my therapist, our, and my therapist have worked through this. Our, our first golf experience together was uh, some kind of chaotic shankathon. But other than that, listen, man, uh, no one on this program has been more complimentary of your golf swing than me. So uh, other than that, I've only ever seen you hit a sweet little right to left. But I got to tell you, I, I think Mike's right. And I, and I will. Uh, I'll be interested to see just how much more comfortable you get as you actually have to hit it toward a target, because you know a little bit of that draw programming will still be in there. Oh yeah, absolutely. That that will be very interesting because I I notice that when I go to set up to hit a ball, I'm still my default is to set up my body a touch right of the target. And anyways, so. What's interesting, I think, what you're talking about is that the left shot is death. You know, that, that, you know, it starts left of the target, it's going further left, and there's just, that's just, the minimal you're going to make is a double bogey, which is basically a par with your second ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and Oh, you're telling yeah, me, the, brother. <laughs> yeah, so with the fade, though, as you say, if, if the fade becomes a slice... It's not necessarily going to be, you know, OB or gone where the mice live. You're going to find it. And maybe you're going to be even on the right side of the fairway, not as opposed to, you know, in the boonies with the trees up your butt. Well, think about this. Okay, I'll leave that alone for a second. I don't know why, I don't know why trees are up your butt, but hey, you know, you're well, in your 60s. They, if they do, at some golf courses, they don't trim them up high enough. So, uh, but if you think about what happens to, you know, a shut-faced pull hook you know two things it goes further because you're getting you know your face is shut it really compresses it yeah. it goes further it go, it's not only going left but it's going further left whereas if you sort of don't quite catch a cut and you open it too much and it slices or overfades, it doesn't go as far so again it reduces the um, inertia on the on the shot it doesn't you know you may weak you know you I, my my friend paul henrik has a great phrase for it he calls it sky toe chipping where you sky <laughs> you know you yeah. sort of sky toe it to yeah. the right somewhere but you can usually find it even if it's in even if it's in the rough or the early trees it's not way out of play so i applaud you the other thing i like about the feeling of a of a cut versus you know what a lot of us do which is pull hook and overdraw it is it does something to the uh the motion of your body i know this is a mental performance show but i would just tell you it's all the same stuff but i'll tell you as a geek of the game the sensation of trying to cut something what it does and you guys can try this in the mirror at home what it does is it puts your 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 right side if you're right-handed in a position underneath the left just stay with me. When you when you think draw, what it does is it gets that right shoulder sometimes out and over because mm. we think in our brain that we're we're going to draw it with our whole body. And and that's the difference. When you go to cut it, it's almost like it it puts your upper body in a nice position to deliver the club. And you can you can draw it eventually from that position, but what it does immediately is it takes your upper body away from that right side spinning. 
Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's why I mean I'm I'm telling you this because of my. 45-year love affair with pull-hooking the shit out of everyone. <laughs> just really just pull-hooking everything. Uh, I actually think it's a love-hate thing, but there you go. <laughs> That's right. My love-hate affair. That is absolutely the truth. So I applaud I, you. Not again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How he ties. Oh, God. Last year, I had a number of rounds where it was going pretty nicely. Thank you very much. And then it's like out of nowhere... This thing possesses my body, and adios. What are they? AMF. <laughs> well, um, I want to move on, but that that little thing I just described—it it really is the sort of DNA, at least for me, the DNA yeah. of why um, this guy that I interviewed when you were away, Eric Corgano, has a great yeah, drill. Great interview. Great interview. Thank you. Eric's a very smart guy. Anyway, he, he's been on the road this whole winter going to different teachers around U, the U.S. and taping lessons with them. And it's a cute little series he's got going, and Eric's got a great YouTube channel. But one of the things he did, and I think it was Chris Como, I think it was the guy that used to teach Tiger in between Foley yeah. and then Tiger's uh, current swing coach, Tiger. So yeah. Como had this great drill about, you know, it doesn't matter, but it basically shows you that really good players get the, in, in our case, right hand. They get the right hand underneath the lead arm through impact, where what, what most of us do when we pull hook is that right arm and shoulder and upper body starts to get high exactly. early. Because, again, we're thinking draw, but the draw doesn't happen until the ball. But we're thinking it with our whole upper bodies, which is why we tend to better players do this. We tend to get out and over, but because we've been doing it so long, we'll shut the face. Whereas a newer golfer in the same position will slice across it. It really It's funny because for, for better players, it's the same fault as a higher handicap wiping across. But we've been doing this so long that we tend to keep our hands... You know, Mo, uh, your your friend, our, you know, Mo Norman had a great phrase for it about the educated hands and right. better players, educated hands won't allow them to wipe it. So we tend to save it by shutting the face. But it's all starts with that right side high versus in a cut DNA, that right side feels like it's trailing a little bit, whether it is or isn't. It's just the feeling you get. Yeah, and, and that's what that what counts. It was interesting if uh, you know a few minutes ago you're saying, well, well, we're kind of getting some technical stuff, and this is a mental show. But you know, I think it's all aligned. Um, and what I'm going to go to is so in working with Mike Martz, so I've had two sessions with him, and we're changing the shape of my ball. He has not given me one technical thing. He has not given me anything about here's what you do with your left hip. You know, what, you know, supinate, pronate, blah, 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 none. And so it's really interesting working with what I call a true coach who is, in essence, pulling out what I've already got. He's pulling out the best parts of me and what would work for me and the way my body works and what feels natural. So that's really interesting. And so after the last our last session, he said, so between now and next time we meet, he wants me to go out someplace, you know, whether it's a sim or a golf dome or something, and just start hitting um, drivers, mostly drivers, and just see what it feels like and, and what happens with your body when you're hitting that, that fade and, and it's going. Because I still was, every once in a while, I would hit that dead left shot, even though I was trying to hit the fade. Of course. And, 
So, but it's, but he said, just, just be open and aware of what's happening with your body. And I would say with your mind as you're trying to get into it, you know? And so I thought that was really, really interesting. Again, well, he's such so a smart guy. guy. Oh yeah. Well, he's, he's super you know, smart. He's the most certified coach in Canada. Yeah. And, and for a reason, you know, just get that. Absolutely. Um, you know, so, a, a, as I just thought that was cool. No, I just thought cool. it was really cool that, that here I had two sessions and, you know, if you ask your most golfers, they're going to, what they ex- expect out of a golf lesson is go. The guy, the pro leans on his seven iron and says, well, let's see, hit a few part. And they go, well, we can work with that. So here's what you do. You know, do this, this, and this left hip, right elbow, knit your left eyebrow, and <laughs> we'll true. see you in two weeks. <clears throat> and so yeah. you're broken. Here's what I'm going to give you to fix it, work on it, come back, and let's see how you do. And let's connect that to the, the mental side of the game, whether it's a lesson or something you saw on TV or something you've been working on yourself. <clears throat> Excuse me. The frustration for us comes when we go to the golf course. We think, well, I've tried so hard. Uh, why isn't this working? Or And then you get frustrated. Or you think, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do what I've been told? You know, why can't I... Yeah. Why can't I be correct? That's frustrating. Um, where, where when you're working with someone like Mike, he just gives you things that you can sort of pull out yourself. And what ultimately, you know, as you learn this, the frustration might be lower because you're, you're, you, you have it within you. It's there. It's not something you're uh, hoping to approximate. You know it's there, and sometimes it'll be better and sometimes it'll be worth but it, it's coming out of you so yeah so there's no there's no trying there's, yeah. there's no trying to do something there's no trying to match a model you know of something that i think is right and what i've done is historically being wrong yeah and if you and i've talked about <laughs> ad infinitum on this show the the thing that frustrates so many golfers is this feeling you know i'll speak about me is that Oh, I guess I just can't do this. Yeah. How come I can't do this right? I guess I started golf too late. All that. I guess I don't practice enough. Oh, I'm just not athletic enough. You know, yeah. I, I, I've told my brothers, my older brother is really an avid player, the guy that I also interviewed when you weren't here. But I always tell him, I say, you know, a lot of, you know, higher handicap golfers think that lower handicap golfers were given some secret. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, They've been blessed by the They've been blessed club. somehow yeah. or another, and I always say it's not that at all. It's just a, 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 I'd say, a slight, a tiny bit more understanding of just the basics. You know, one of the things about Mike, what he's doing with you, and, I, and, I, and I'm sure there's part of a, a larger thing with Mike or any good teacher, but getting you to learn to hit fades is getting you to do a lot of stuff. Now, the thing I described is part of hitting a fade. The other thing it does, trying to hit hit a fade, especially with driver, and especially as you get with longer clubs. Thinking fade also keeps the club face more stable because Ooh. you're not... Because what, what, what I didn't describe in the pull hooker's handbook... <laughs> Howard Glassman's pull hooker's handbook. The other thing that happens is through impact, you flip your hands. And, right. and I've spent my entire golf life kind of just flipping my hands through impact to a greater or lesser degree. Because I know now, 
what I've been working on this winter is not not so much to try and hit a fade, but to try and stabilize the club face. And by right. doing so, it produces an anti-left shot. Most of the shots I've been hitting this winter, and I haven't hit a lot, don't really do much. They kind of go straight, fall to the right. But what it does do is it stops my hands from flipping at impact. And I can Absolutely. tell you, if you go to hit those drivers, really my only... Uh, thought would be just strengthen those fingers on your left hand a little bit more than you normally do at the beginning just so you can feel the face way more open and impact than you than you're used to yeah that's a good awareness i like that but it's as mike we were talking with mike last time you look at who are the guys that, that really astound everybody these days the way they drive it yeah brooks kepka dustin johnson dustin johnson they all hit it left or right, and it seems to get out there far enough. Oh yeah, well that those that, you and I grew up in an era where the reason everyone drew tried to hit draws is because the balls and the clubs were so shit that it was what you needed to get that. But but you know the the only major the only guy that drives it a mile that doesn't totally faded is Rory McIlroy, but he's just he's like an alien. But I'll exactly. tell you, Cameron Champ does. Most of the long drivers do hit. You know, little cuts, but they don't cut like, you know, we grew up hitting those banana balls and stuff. Exactly. Um, all right. Let's get today's uh, show. Uh, we've been talking for 17 minutes and we haven't even, um, you know, uh, said what today's show is about. Today is Tim and Howard's book review. We're going to talk about a couple of books that we think would be good for you during the winter to maybe uh, read for the first time. Or explore again. So we and and you know, considering how we can expand time, you and I, we should probably get to that in a second. But first, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce to you uh, a gentleman that has just been uh, received the news that he is being honored by the Golf uh, Association of Ontario. Um, Ontario Golf Hall of Fame class of 2020 announced, and um, the winner. The media award recipient, the Lauren Rubenstein media award recipient, goes to Timothy O'Connor. Congratulations. Thank you, people. (laughs) Wow. Thanks, man. Wow. The Lauren Rubenstein media award recipient. How do you feel? Um, Really cool. It's really cool. Feeling a bit overwhelmed this morning. Yesterday, you know, I've known about this for a few weeks. Uh, the release went out yesterday, uh, but this morning, um, I got to admit that the whole social media thing—it's like holy cow! So yeah, overwhelming, and yeah, it's really, really interesting. I'm just through, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, all that goes. I'm I'm connecting with all these people who were kind of like along the way, like, you know, like Ken Becker, who I um, worked with. He was an editor of mine at, at United Press Canada. And I just took so much of what he taught me into it. And, you know, people like John Gordon and all these other good folks. So it's really fun to um, have another connection with these people who, uh, you know, I worked so closely with those uh, many thousands of years ago. Wow. <laughs> well, this is quite an honor. I mean, you know, I, it's cool because I I also know Lauren a bit, and uh, what a thrill to be to receive a award in his name because he's the Absolutely. best of the best. 
Yep. You know, it's not uh, it's not a small thing to be in the same you know paragraph as you writers like to say sentences, paragraphs. You know, writing um, <laughs> words. Page. Uh, but that's pretty cool. That's pretty heady stuff, and I'm really thrilled for you. I'm just looking here at the uh, release and you know all the things that you've done in the in the golf business, all the publications you've written for, the books you've written, and the books you've edited, so on and so forth. There really is something else, and I don't. You know, you said, "Oh, it's the kind of thing they give you at the end of your life." You're just a baby. <laughs> Come on, you know, early sixties. That's like you know, early fifties used to be. Yeah, I think you're bolstering yourself there, having just passed oh, yeah. the sixty mark yourself. <laughs> well, no, I'm like a junior. I'm like a junior senior now. Like my older brother, my, that guy I interviewed, he's going to be seventy soon. I like like seventies. That's legit old, man. No, it's like, not. That's oh, the yeah. new fifty. No, it's, it's not the new fifty. No, it's yes, not. Seventy's it not the new anything. Seventies <laughs> like countdown to whatever. But sixty-two, whatever you adventures. are, whatever you are, that's where it's at, man. Um, well, good for you. And and so this Thanks. will be at a ceremony at Wooden Sticks, you said, in early May. And that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, it'd be really cool. I'd be, um, yeah, so Danny Mievic, he was inducted into, well, now so he's going to be inducted into the uh, Golf Ontario Hall of Fame. That's really cool. Um, yeah, it'll be neat. My family be there. And, yeah, I believe me, this is really, really cool. I'm um yeah, I don't. It's like so. Like I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, you but know I'm what? Feeling, I'm feeling really good. Feeling yeah. it feels really nice. Um, and again, it's it, the the golf writing community, the golf industry community is really small. So it's just really interesting to be um, connecting with those people and and just remembering things that we did together and experiences on fam trips and working with editors and and. All of that, that stuff is, that, that's the really cool stuff. Well, and it's interesting, too, for a lot of reasons, that you're getting the Lauren Rubinstein Award, um, especially since the work you do now is, you know, in the work of coaching and mental performance coaching and coaching executives as well as golfers, uh, because one of the greatest mental performance moments I've ever witnessed was from Lauren Rubenstein. Do you know my Rubenstein story playing in the club championship? No, no, do tell. Oh, I think, you know, somewhere in the last three years, I'm sure I told this, maybe even, didn't we have Lauren on this show back in the day? I think we've had Lauren at least once. Yeah, maybe at least once. Twice. So we're playing the club championship. Lauren's a very fine player. Probably at his best was a, you know, pretty solid four at the, at the national. So a very nice player. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, very good. And we're playing the club championship, get to the seventh hole at the Nash, and he has one of those holes. You know, it's one of those things where it was getting so bad that the other, I guess it was myself and somebody else in the group, you know, we, it's like you just want to turn away. You can't watch it. You know, you're, everyone's being very quiet. And Lauren huh. slashed his way to, I'm going to say, a 12. I, I think I've told the story before, and it I might have said 14. But somewhere between 12 and 14 and a par four. And here's where it was uh, like a just a gangster moment. because So we play that hole. I don't, I don't have his card, so somebody else has to add it up with him. But he says nothing. Doesn't say a thing. We play 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, all the way to the 15th hole. It's a par three, and we have to wait. This is like, I don't know, 
Eight holes later, an hour and a half go by. And, uh, we're just sitting there, and out of nowhere, he goes, fucking 12. <laughs> and it's the first, it was the first thing, first time he'd mentioned anything about it for eight holes. And I just cracked up. I was like, wow, that's a boss move. He, just, he didn't yeah. say a word till we got to the 15th tee, then he just goes, fucking 12. And I laugh, man. You it was put great. that in a golf movie. <laughs> it was so great. Because, you know, I was uh, at the time, you know, if I had had a 12, I would have just gone right from the 7th uh, green to my car. So I was just impressed by that. Anyway, yeah, that's my... Uh, so, okay, listen, I, you know, I, we spend the rest of the show telling you why you deserve it. You just do, so enjoy it. Thank you. I All will. Right. Okay, so let's All get right. on to our book report. All right. Uh, today, Tim and I have chosen a couple of books that we find um, very pleasing, and Timothy is going to begin by addressing the class. It's a very simple exercise. Tim's going to tell you what the book is and why he thinks it's one for you to read. Ahem. Thank you. This is my Tim. book report. <laughs> yeah, so um, and just just as a sort of a preamble, Kind of the thinking is is that, hey, folks, it's winter time. So you can read these books and connect with different things. And I'll connect you with the game. But So the one I'm going to start with is uh, it's called My Usual Game, Adventures in Golf. And it's by a very fine golf writer, uh, writer just great writer all in all, is David Owen. And he's written for The New Yorker. He's done columns for uh, Golf Digest for many years. Um what I love about my usual game is that when I read it, I went, oh, my gosh, someone else who is as much of a nerd as me. <laughs> so throughout the book, he talks about things like he would drive past an airport and see this expansive grass That's right. and go like, wow, you can hit balls out there. That's right. That's a total golf nerd move. We've, Absolutely. We've, we've done he, that. We talked I, about. I was going to say, we've had that conversation before where I'll drive by a farmer's field and go, that'd make a nice range. I can make a nice exactly, range. exactly. You know that'd be a good. That'd be a good <laughs> so funny. Look at that. Look at exactly. And <laughs> that then, is such so a golfer's thing. You see a nice somebody's got a nice estate out in the country with a trees and a pool. You're thinking, why doesn't he have a range for crying out loud? Exactly. And then he talks about this golf trip he made to Ireland, and he you know he has all these friends who talk about doing a bike trip, and he goes, "Why the hell would you go on a bike trip to Ireland? You can't take golf clubs on a bike." No, exactly. You know? So it's that just sort of over the top, and and so it, he's very very funny writer, and um, you know he's just really uh, in, incredible. Um, so that that's a book that I would start with, uh, just because um, you can really relate to it. And he talks about being um, you know at a at a pro am. And he goes in and he, he gets all his swag, all the stuff that they gave him. He puts it all in his room and he's admiring it, looking at it. He's going, all this free stuff. And then he goes, oh, wait a sec. I paid 1500 bucks to play <laughs> in this thing. So it's all those kinds of uh, great things that he's got going on. And I was I was looking at the at the um, at the book here, but uh, I was going to read something from it, but I can't yeah, read it. particularly Go ahead. find it right Right. I can't find it right away. But uh, so anyways, it's called My Usual Game, um, Villard Books, whatever. But uh, My Usual Game by David Owen, uh, a very funny book. He's, he's thoughtful, but I think you really, a lot of golfers will see themselves uh, in this book when they read it. Well, thank you, Tim. That was very 
Uh, good. That was Thank a good you. book report. And uh, I couldn't find the quote. That's okay. That's if okay. you find it, we can come back to it. Thank now, I had chosen another book for my first book. But if I may just offer, based on your choice, uh, something that basically is the very first golf book I ever wrote, read is the was Dan Jenkins, The Dogged Victims of Inexorable Fate. I was a 10-year-old boy, and I didn't know wow. what inexorable meant, but my father <laughs> had to tell me. Uh, anyway, it's the book where uh, he describes, it's, he, it's, it's sort of, um, it's 1970s golf, and, he, and Arnold Palmer is Arnold Palmer, and it's just one of those books that, uh, if you've ever heard of Dan Jenkins, he passed away last year, but it, it's not only funny, but it describes life on the PGA Tour in the 1960s, and one of the best stories in it is he describes Palmer's comeback at the uh, 60... I think it's the 1960 or 64 U.S. Open when he drives the green at Cherry Hills in the last round, comes back from seven back and, you know, shoots 65 to win the U.S. Open. Anyway, but uh, so that's that's a book like the one you're describing, like an actual golf book about the game. Okay. But that yeah, wasn't my that wasn't my book report book. That was just a little extra for you on the way. I'm, I'm sure you've read it years ago, too. Oh yeah, well it's that's a great book. But Dan Jenkins was a, a giant of, yeah. of golf writing, really funny man. But he also in his writing, uh, he <laughs> he would come off as mean. You know, it's like if somebody some no name you know happened to you know, there's a uh, if some no name if you will go with that wins a major championship, he would always be disappointed because he wouldn't be able to tell great stories because they don't know who this guy is. People don't relate to him. So he was always cheering for the best story. <laughs> well, he certainly wrote great stories, but like I said, he was the one that kind of, I was on a family trip, some vacation with my parents, and I was in the back of this car reading the book, and it kind of, what it sort of got me in love with the game, because I also liked humor, and I, I knew the guy was funny, he was telling funny stories. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, so my first book, though, kind of along. It's what started me on this journey years ago, and I've told the story, so I won't retell it about all the years of quitting and uh, going into tournaments and playing nine holes and the club championship and all that stuff. And then in 1995, so I'd had the early 90s were just horrible <laughs> for me. You know, I was. If you had uh, to put a label on that period of your life, Howard, yeah, how well, would you describe it? Chaos. It was chaos. <laughs> And uh, on the golf course was chaos, too. And then I read this book. Um, it'll be no surprise to you that uh, Bob Rotella's Golf is Not a Game of Perfect <clears throat> sort of changed me. It, it reconfigured how I approached the game, and then it got me curious about the mental side of things. <clears throat> because before that, I didn't realize that that was even a component and golf is not a game of perfect. I know most people, <clears throat> excuse me, most people listening have heard us maybe reference Bob Rotella. But it is the first book I ever read that got me thinking that if if maybe I didn't need to be perfect to play at a high level. And, uh, I mean, I, I could give you all the chapter and verse stuff. But basically that's the takeaway for me is that Bob Rotella was the first one. He told stories about teaching, um, at that time, Ben Crenshaw. And um, 
I think even Tom Kite maybe, but oh no, and Davis Love. He told stories. Absolutely. Of, yep. So <clears throat> the, the the great thing about that book is it kind of. There were other books before tennis, uh, entered game of tennis and stuff. But for golfers, that's kind of ground zero of the the shift to the mental side and how important it is. Absolutely, that you're absolutely right. That was the book that you know it it sold big numbers. It connected with people, and it was the one in which people really went, "Hmm, maybe it's not all about connecting dots." You know, insert tab A into slot B kind of golf so that was a that was a huge influence and i think that that may have played a, a role in pj more pj tour players starting to work with uh, golf site coaches and just a general awareness that that six inches between your ears is a, a huge place and and that in many ways is the place uh, i'm preaching to uh, converted you and i here but yeah. that's the place to invest your time well, um, it, it, you think about it, you know, it was, um, you know, and I, and I would guarantee you all the guys that came after uh, all the other mental performance people. Gino well, Vanelli. Yeah, Gino, Gino Vanelli. I was going to, you know, it's funny. I was thinking of him. <laughs> Dr. Gio yeah. uh, and all those others, Coop and uh, whatever. They would look to that book and, and to Rotella because Rotella had been doing that sort of sports psychology in other sports. He worked with basketball teams. Yep. And he started working with the golfers in the early 90s, which led him to write that book. And it's got lots of great stuff for and stuff that still works today. You know, one of the great quotes in the book for me was, if you're not thinking about the target, what are you thinking about? Exactly. Like, if you're not over the golf ball thinking of sending, that's how he puts it, sending right. the ball somewhere, then you're you're missing the point of the game, which is to connect the ball to a target as opposed to connect you to a golf swing. And uh, I can tell you, I read the book in 95, and I, you know, I've told this story. I went from, you know, barely finishing the club championship. <clears throat> Excuse me. Two years later, I won it. You know, I, I, I qualified for the Ontario Amateur. I played in the Ontario Amateur. I played in the Canadian Amateur. But two years earlier than that, I, I quit the club championship. So when I say that bo- that book changed my golf life, it did. It really it put me on a path of learning that brought me to you because when we first met, I guarantee you we we talked about that book. I guarantee you that because Tim and I were like, you know, getting all excited and geeking out over the fact that we'd read all the same stuff or a lot of the same stuff. But that was the first one for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So all right. Uh, so that's my report on your first book. Uh, my first book always not a game of perfect. And I hope Howard that you've prepared. You've done your preparation. You've you have a few more books for us. I have one more book. What's your second book? My second book would be no surprise. I've got some. I got a couple others. I want the feeling to talk of about, greatness. But... Tim O'Connor. I love it. <laughs> we'll save that for later. <laughs> I love that book. Are you talking about Tim O'Connor's book uh, that led him to the Lauren Rubenstein Media Award from uh, no, Ontario? Not. No, but you can Google it, people. Google. Go on Amazon and order the damn by thing. The way, That'd be even better. I just want to say. Uh, Apropos of nothing, I'm tired of people saying they're researching shit when really they're just Googling it. I'm just right. tired of that. No, The next person says to me, oh, I was just researching that last night. I go, no, you weren't. You just typed it into the Google thing. You were out Research. on the internet. You're on that interweb yeah. so information the highway you're just not, cruising. You're not researching. You're not in some lab somewhere. Anyway. And you're not in a library. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So, it's no surprise that... 
following up on that, that around the mental game, the book that had the most resonance with me, Extraordinary Golf by Fred Shoemaker. Oh, good choice. Good choice. Yeah. So my, my history with that book was that, so back in, you know, 90s, early 2000s, you know, I was trying, I was doing everything that a lot of golfers do, like trying to do what, you know, my coach would tell me to do and swing like this guy and training aids. And I always thought that, that swinging correctly would, would be my salvation, but it just never just seemed to come. My expectations would never be met. And I, I just realized I was a paralysis by analysis basket case. So I had read probably in the early nineties, extraordinary golf and thought, well, that's pretty interesting, but that's not gonna help me with my backswing. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, that's not gonna help me. I'm you know, different. Ball. Exactly. I need to work on my <laughs> turn. Or I need a team of instructors 24 seven. Exactly. So I rediscovered, I got the book out again. I don't know. I think it was, it was probably mid two thousands. And I went, you know, there's something here. And the key thing to me around it was the just the concept of awareness. Is like, can I really feel what's going on in my body? What I'm, you know, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling in my body, the tension I'm carrying. And, anyways, I'm not going to get too much into it, but I'll just say that I I read that book, and then in June I was a nine handicap. By August I was a six. It just made such a dramatic difference, and that in terms of that reduction is huge in golf. Oh yeah. And it just suddenly the game just seemed, wow, more fun, <laughs> more freedom. And it wasn't from the fact I was hitting the ball better. It was from, I was just freer in allowing myself to play the game, to, to hit shots and just feel it and more trusting of my body and more like, okay, what's the shot here? And just go, okay, let's see what happens and hitting it and going like, Holy crap, my body knows how to do this. And I don't have to think about how far I need to take the putter back to hit a 20-footer. Just my body will figure it out. So that's the book that was a massive game changer for me and why that launched me into <laughs> really kind of becoming an acolyte disciple, uh, describe it what you will, of Fred Shoemaker. You know, I was the same as you. I read that book. You know, because after I read Rotella's book, I must have read, you know, I've, I've, I threw out like dozens of old golf books when I moved here. Square to square. <laughs> I read, I read, you know, I found it, it's funny because before I, I knew you, I, I think I, and we had this little funny thing is I'd had your book. I, I had had the original feeling of greatness. I, you know, years before I met you. But I read a lot of that stuff, and and I was the same when I read Extraordinary Golf. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I, mm -hmm. I'm I'm different and special, so I'll need I'll need yeah. real and I'll need real instruction. It's Meanwhile, right. you know, last fall, last summer and fall, I got to talk to Fred, and and it, you know, he's just forget a, the golf knowledge the guy has. He just has such a such a great way about him. Mm -hmm. You know, he's so uh, centered and grounded, whatever you want to say. And, and uh, he brought that approach to learning the game of golf. And, yeah, I can see that's one of those ones I would also recommend to people. We've talked about Fred enough that you should be curious to go check out his work. 
Yeah, and just the other, uh, quickly, the other book that I would recommend, if you, if if what we're talking about, the Rotella book, the Shoemaker book, if that appeals to you, it, in all honesty, get the inner game of tennis, <laughs> not the inner game of sneezing. Oh no, you, they can't hear me sneeze. I turned I turned my mic off. Only you can oh. hear me. I should have oh, okay. sneezed right into the mic. I'm sorry. No, the inner. It's funny. I I found it super dry. Um, I know everyone raves about it, inner game of tennis. I tried. I read it a couple times. I mean, it's good, but I just found it very dry. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I found it fascinating. Yeah. I just thought it was incredible because uh, it's the book because you wouldn't have Fred Shoemaker. That's true. And maybe, I don't know. Um, no, you're right. Rotel is an interesting guy. And we can go back to Mike Martz for a sec here. Um, so Mike was at some kind of workshop or keynote thing that Rotella was giving. And uh, and Mike's a real straight shooter. That's what I like about him. So after the talk, um, Mike goes up to Rotella and he goes, interesting talk. He says, but uh, you've just moved the bones from one grave to another. <laughs> and Rotella kind of looked at him. Uh, what do you mean? He says, he says, what you're doing is just bringing Eastern philosophy and awareness and elements of Buddhism and meditation into the sports world. And uh, so, as you might imagine, Rotella didn't take kindly to that. But I think there's a lot of uh, truth to that. And so to connect back to Timothy Galway and the inner game of tennis, that's in essence what he did. He yes. took a lot of this, um, this just this awareness and this, this taking the ego out of the equation – and the whole idea of our of our minds, which don't trust our bodies, and and it it's always kind of like the the barking inner voice. Oh, you better do this, better not do that, and how we handcuff ourselves when we, in essence, let that mind, which has a negative bias to it, mm-hmm. control. So that's the that was sort of where I started to connect dots with this stuff. Uh, back to Galway to Shoemaker and. Really, Galway was the guy who kind of really launched the whole... You know, uh, uh, it's been so long since I read it. I, I should give it another shot at some point. I just remember it. Honestly, I haven't read it in 30 years. I just remember it being a bit plotting, but maybe that was no, just me. You know what? I think, you, you'd, I think you'd find it uh, a lot more interesting now, yeah. particularly now that you've got a relationship with Fred. So my last entry, this was, I, I said to you before we started recording, I said, this is going to be a surprise to you, so just get ready for it. Um, I'm still bolt upright. So I'll just preface it by saying I'm like a lot of golfers. You know, I've had a lot of what seems like golf-related injuries. You know, my back and elbows and necks and, you know, lately the last six months, sciatica, which is a drag. Ouch. You know, and I've been around the modality world a long time, and, uh, you know, I'd— I'd heard of this guy, but I and I and I was kind of like, ah, you know, I don't know if I believe it. <clears throat> anyway, the book is called Healing Back Pain. Cool. And the guy that wrote wrote it is uh, he's passed away now. Um, a couple of years ago, his name is Doctor John Sarno. S A R N O. And um, I, I won't get into it all because I'm not. I've read it. I've read his second book, uh, The Divided Mind, and now I'm reading another book by an acolyte of his uh, called, let me get to my library, it's called The Pain Deception 
But anyhow, and I think that for for our golf friends and and for for yourself as well, you'll you know I think this will resonate with a lot of golfers because John Sarno's sort of thesis has been that a lot of injuries that we suffer are not from the source that we think that again I'm screwing this up let me start again by saying everyone over the age of 20 has disc herniation uh, you know back starting to get a little arthritic and so on and we've been as a society given the mental picture that backs are fragile and you've got to get them fixed and and you're in pain and and what Sarno found over the course of his practice is that People that presented, you'll love this, people that present with neck, back, elbow, butt, back, upper thoracic, uh, soft tissue injury, they all tended to, this is what got him, him curious, they all tended to be very type A, controlling, perfectionist, all we want, you know, doing the right thing type of people, got to do it right, and and he started to observe that they were a similar type of people, and he would look at their MRIs and think, you know, these shouldn't be producing the kind of pain, the debilitating, chronic, can't-get-out-of-bed pain that, that we've been sort of led to believe that these backs are so fragile. Anyway, he came up with this idea that, and again, I'll, I would wish you would all go and check it out because he, he'll describe it better, but the one key is that you know golf is filled with people that I just described. In fact, I would say oh, that yeah. golf, even if you're not one of those people, golf kind of makes you feel like that. Like you're, you want to do it right. You, you know, you, you got to be perfect. And, and, you know, back to the idea that golf is not a game of perfect. He wrote mm. that because there's a perfectionist mentality in the game that breeds frustration. But it also breeds tons of bad backs. Anyway... I'll just say this. Sarno's had so much success with people and what he calls it, he calls it uh, knowledge therapy. Because over the course of 20, 30 years of doing this, he would give people this knowledge. Your back is fine. You're okay. It's all in your mind. Not psychosomatic. It wasn't that they were producing false um pain what they're doing and this is the last part before i uh, will take questions from you um the, the what was producing the pain is this repressed anger and repressed emotion and and he calls it the uh, the symptom imperative because sure you go and get your back you know uh, chiropractic or surgery and he said it's like a it's like a giant placebo because invariably that pain will move around because your unconscious represses rage and emotions. But what it does do is it gives you some pain so you can focus on that, not the real problem of repressed whatever, right? I know it's a lot to take in, but I, as you can tell, I'm excited about it because I've been reading it now, him and a bunch of other things for the last couple of weeks. And I can tell you, I've started to notice a different relationship with my pain. I'm not thinking... You know, like, oh, my God, I'm broken, and what will I ever do? And I've been getting procedures, and I've been getting nerve root burning, and yet I'm still getting this pain. And yet, mm. with this knowledge, it started to abate. I can tell you, I don't know if it's in my mind or not, but I'm feeling a little bit better. You know, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit of a different relationship with it. And that's what I would say for you golfers, for us golfers, it's worth exploring because... 
You know, we all just think, well, golf's making me feel bad. But in actual fact, it's a lot of your brain, you know, it's doing it in a positive way because we don't want to examine the the emotions in our lives. So it it gives us this pain. So we have a distraction from the real work. Timothy O'Connor. That's fascinating. And that connects with... uh I wasn't going to talk about this, but I'm just briefly mentioned. It's called Opening Up. It's by James Pennebaker. And his thesis is that a lot of people suffer in their world body pain and mental anguish and depression because they are so much of what they're doing is repressing the things that are going on. They don't. You know what you're what you're talking about is not yes it's okay to be a, a raging maniac it's you know you don't need to you know in a board meeting uh, you know go into the 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 fetal position and cry tears what he's talking about is awareness of that you have this stuff going on within you and that the actual trying to inhibit it is where you have a lot of the trouble starts so that leads me into my question uh, to you is that. Okay, so people are listening to this and going, okay, I'm hurting in some ways because I'm repressing. But it's also, excuse me, Timmy, it's it's unconscious repression. It's not conscious. Um, That's what he says. He says, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm in a bad mood. It's that we're protecting our bodies, our brains, you know, the, the, the unconscious, conscious connection. Unconsciously, we're protecting ourselves by producing these symptoms. Okay. So people are going to wonder, they're going to be very curious about, okay, I have this stuff going on. I might even be unconscious about it, but how do I start to say, express or bring it to the surface? So that's my question to you. Is well, that, he if says, you have this stuff going on. How do you start to release that in a positive way? Great question. Um, and I'm still working through that because, you know, he talks about knowledge being curative and the, the first kind of feeling I had that maybe, you know, I wasn't going to need surgery or I'd be okay. And that, you know, that just, listen, I, I'm in pretty good shape. I can go and do yoga. I can hit golf oh, balls, yeah. whatever. But I still have pain every day. Like, mm-hmm. I literally don't have a day where my back hasn't been hurting me and my sciatic is driving me crazy. But my relationship with it has changed in the last couple of weeks. You know, like I said, I, I don't have the expertise. I'll just tell you, this guy is, if you go check him out, like, you know, when he died a couple of years ago, Howard Stern eulogized him for an hour because he had made such a difference to Stern and a lot of other people's backs. The The trick for golfers is, you know, golf really does produce, first of all, I think it attracts people like us, but I also think it produces a mindset of perfection chasing that then can get you know, stuck in your body, producing symptoms that kind of take your mind away from how much you hate <laughs> the uh, some of the aspects of the game. And and the oh, way yeah. he, here's where it really hit it for me when he described the kind of people that had been coming into his practice for 30 years. I was like, well, that's exactly me. You know, wanting mm. to do good and 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 being a perfectionist and and on and on and on. I was like, wow. You know, it's like that definitely is me. And but he he it's almost like good news because 
I'll give you I'll give you a great example because I, I'm not a I don't want to get into people's back troubles because there's going to be someone listening going but my back shows a herniation in L5 and L6 well everyone's does there isn't an MRI that you can see that doesn't have some DDD at a certain age and a little arthritis but as Sarno says that that's not enough to produce bedridden debilitating can't you know like anyway. So wow, that's that's really really interesting. But you know, yeah. one of the things he talks about, and this is the last thing I'll say, maybe not How about this. <laughs> so he talked he talked about how how certain maladies uh, symptoms become part of the cultural zeitgeist, and here's the example. So computers came into vogue in the late '80s, early '90s, and prior to that, you know, obviously in the early 2000s, everyone had a computer. But prior to that, there was no such thing as carpal tunnel syndrome. Oh, okay? yeah. So, but all of a sudden, everyone uh, is working on keyboards, and we all thought, well, of course, that's re- repetitive stress, and it's hurting my, my hands. I'm getting carpal tunnel syndrome. But as he said, for hundreds of years before that, oh, no, the point is, it became very part of the people we're talking about. Oh, you have CTS, or you do. Oh, maybe I do, too, right? I, you know, it's like that whole thing, you start to see it as a symptom. But he said for 100 years before that, people were banging away on manual typewriters, and no one had CTS and never heard of it. And it took force to press those keys. You had to bang your hands <laughs> way harder than tippy-tapping on a typewriter tippy on a keyboard. Perfect. But think about it. You know, I had... When I first started in radio in 1977, I had a manual typewriter. I remember yep. in the mid-'80s when I got an electric typewriter, I thought I was one of the Jetsons. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but, and, and, but think about it. We, people aren't talking about it anymore. It, it, for about 20 years there was all I heard people talk about in offices. But it's kind of gone out of style. So has it magically been cured or have we moved on from our brains using that as a placeholder for our emotions? So, I mean, that's kind of a a, a little, you know, cheap example of it. But it gives you some idea that, you know, a lot of times, so back problems, you know, for hundreds of years, we worked the land and we were, you know, very, very uh, physical. And no one was walking around with bad backs. People survived. And then all of a sudden, you know, back pain and advances in technology. And listen, I'm, I've, I've had every kind of modality other than actual surgery you can have on a back. You'd think, as he says, the body has a healing system. When you break your leg, your femur uh, cures or, or heals in six weeks. So why is it some people have bad backs for 30 years? What, that's yeah. the only part in your body that never heals? So check it out. Healing back pain, that's where you start. Yeah, and I love that. And the connection to golfers is, is that it really does lend itself to that perfectionist tendency. Yeah, man. You know, like, the, like we have this image that the great golfers got there because they spent hours and hours on their range working till their hands bled. Yeah. And so it lends itself to that. What's it um, – uh, I had another thought, but it's gone. So, um, okay. Do you feel complete, young man, in terms of that report you made? I've done. I'm all done, yeah. I okay. got very all excited. Right. So I'm, I'm I want to apologize for getting very excited. Uh, a book um, that I absolutely love, uh, and it's one of my favorite writers, uh, not just of golf, but a lot of different things, is uh, P.J. Wodehouse. Mm. And um, he's known particularly for two Key characters, uh, Bernie Wooster 
and Jeeves, the butler Jeeves. And so this is um, liter- English literature um, written in um, the early part of the 19th century, 20th century, um, largely with people, you know, kind of the 1910s and 20s. And this book is a collection of some of his most famous golf stories. So it's called The Golf Omnibus. Mm. And it is an amazing stuff. So it's very funny. Um, and like the cast of characters is a lot of, what do you say, sort of this British aristocracy, you know, the, the, these Twittery people. Um, <laughs> and they're just, it's just amazing. Um, so the stories, you know, they're usually... You know, some guys battling for, you know, the heart of some girl or something or they're they've got some bet going. Um, But uh, so it's the stories are really engaging and fun. But the guy is a brilliant, brilliant writer. And uh, I was actually looking at one of the books that um, I was, you know, as I was preparing for today's podcast, I was looking at Golf Dreams by John Updike, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, one of the, you know, greatest writers uh you know the united states has ever produced and he in his he was talking about great golf writing he talked about pj wodehouse and um so this is i I actually want to read a bit of this because this is just so well done for people to understand it so this is from um this is from the story the heart of a goof and i just love this it goes it was a morning when all nature shouted for the breeze, as it blew gently up from the valley, seemed to bring a message of hope and cheer, whispering <laughs> of chip shots hold and brassies landing squarely on the meat. The fairway, as yet unscarred by the irons of a hundred clubs, smiled greenly up as at the azure sky, and the sun, peeping above the trees, looked like a giant golf ball perfectly lofted by the mashie of some unseen god and about to drop dead by the pin of the 18th oh my god that is like amazing amazing writing it's funny it's descriptive it has the words brassy in it mashy mashy and brassy which i love yeah but it's just like oh it was a morning when the you know, the whole morning shouted for, I mean, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've never read any of his stuff. I've heard of P.J. Wodehouse. Um, oh, yeah, he's brilliant and so funny. And uh, But if you're just a fan of of good writing, check out that. You, you'll be, you'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll <laughs> Well, <laughs> let's finish off by saying if you're a fan of good golf writing, you must pick up um, Tim O'Connor's uh uh, books. I mean, after all, we're speaking with Lauren Rubenstein, Media Award Golf uh, Award winner, Timothy O'Connor. Um, are your where do people like seriously though? If people want to read some of your stuff. Where do, is it easily available? If I went to Amazon right now, can I order it? Yeah, you'd be able to find um, the feeling of greatness. That was my that was my first book in '95. We put out a second edition in 2017. So get that version. Um, the 2017 version. Okay. Yeah, we added 100 pages of uh, text, uh, um, a whole bunch of first-person anecdotes, and a lot of new pictures. So uh, you got a picture, and I love the picture on the cover. It, it's a Mo from, I'm thinking, early 70s or so with a turtleneck on. And That's he's, right. He's standing in front of, he's got his driver out with a ball on a Coke bottle yeah. and a Cadillac in the background. It is so good. 
Um, so that book, um, the, we also, I co-wrote a book called play golf, the Mo Norman way with, uh, Todd Graves. So there's, there's more insights into Mo there. And if you're really interested in how Mo swung the golf club, you could check that out also on Amazon. Um, and by the, the way, speaking that, of Mo, uh, I'm sorry, what was that? Keep going. <clears throat> no, I just say the other book that uh, I'm very proud of, um, is the history of the Toronto Ladies Golf Club. Now, it might seem kind of like, really? Why would I want to read a club history book? They're as boring as, you know, dishwater. But what's, what was interesting about that book was that largely the history of the Toronto Ladies Club paralleled the history of women in Canadian society. Oh, yeah. Getting the vote, not being taken seriously as business people. Hold, hold, you hold, wouldn't hold, believe. Hold, hold, hold on a second. Yeah. Women can vote? Anyways, continue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, we, you know, in the old days, we'd say, "Oh, we'll get letters now." No. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. So we just, just the, so parallel the history of of women in in Canadian society, and I would say society in general. And so it's the uh, the only all women's golf club in North America. So it's really, really interesting. Stanley Thompson designed it, and all the shenanigans that had to go on with. Um, Ada McKenzie just trying to get the the, the funding for the place, um, being able to buy property, working with Stanley Thompson. It's, I would say, among the few golf history books I've read, golf course history books. Um, it's it's pretty entertaining. Did you not also? I, I noticed in your bio there, uh, looking at the uh, the award stuff. It says that you wrote a book or edited a book about the final pieces of the Ben Hogan puzzle. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. We don't, we don't called, talk about that one. <laughs> yes, uh, and it also. I think that this book had the worst title in what? the history. Of <laughs> what? What is the title of the book? Oh my God! Oh, here it is. Hang on, I have it right here. It's called. It's called. Oh yeah, it's called the final missing piece of Ben Hogan's secret puzzle. Isn't that just terrible? I mean, it I basically to, says what it is. Yeah, I know, but it was, I just thought it was horrible. I tried to talk Dave Hamilton and VJ Trollio to please change it, but no, they were committed to it. Well, Anyways, um, so it's a, it's an instruction book. Um, so VJ Trollio is a golf machine guy, and he co-invented a training device called the putting arc. Oh, which I, think, I love the putting arc. Today is still... Of all the putting training devices you'll see on the PGA Tour and mini tours, that's the one. Anyways, um, the book was really interesting to to work on, and uh, I had known them through working with them on the putting arc. And um, what their thesis essentially was is that Ben Hogan. It's a, so the, the standard thing that people think about in a in a in a backswing is that as they rotate, let's say if you're a right-hander, as you rotate, the majority of your weight is going to go into your right leg, and then you're going to move forward and transfer that weight to your left and and turn your hips. And, and everyone thought, you know, Ben Hogan, the greatest ball striker who ever lived at that time, that's what he did. In fact, what they said Hogan's secret was is that as he rotated back on his backswing – he actually was transferring his weight to his left foot. Like every great golfer of, uh, of all time, basically. Well, so what he did by doing that, well, and I'm not sure. I'm 
We well, get into, yeah, I shouldn't have, but, but from Ben Hogan but, forward, I mean, if you look, I mean, go ahead. I mean, what Ben Hogan did is, is he put words to that motion, but every good golf swing has, please continue. Well, anyway, anyway most people think that, that and, you go and, back and forth. This great golf instruction, classic golf instruction says that you start with your weight 50-50 left and right. Again, we're talking to right-hander. And yeah. as you as you turn, you're going to go more to – most of your weight's going to gather on your right foot, particularly on your right heel, to move upwards of like 70% 70 per, 70 of your weight moves there, and then you transfer it. And the way that people always talked about is that. And Hogan, in his book, uh, Modern Fundamentals, said, you turn your left hip. And, well, that just does it didn't work for the majority of people. And they mm -hmm. went, oh, I read this book. I'm trying to turn my left hip. How come it's not working? But what Hogan did was, as he went back, he transferred the majority of his weight to his to his left foot. And it was really hard to for people to see it. And they didn't. So all he had to do, in essence, was on his, say, downswing or through swing, whatever you want to call it, then he would just he could turn his left hip and just that spring would just unwind and he'd launch it. And the thing was, is that he net Hogan through this and Dave Hamilton and VJ Trolley, the guys who wrote the book, their thesis was that's why Hogan never hit it left. That's right. Was that because he was, there are all kinds of scientific reasons for it, but that was the book. And it was fascinating to, uh, to edit and work with them on that book. But, but I was going to say, so, you know, I, I, I didn't know you had done that book, but it's interesting in, I don't know, somewhere in the last couple of months, I mean, it could have been Corgano's site, but, you know, now with being able to measure all the technology that can measure your actual weight and how it moves through the swing, your weight transfers in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an elite player, in fact, most players, but in an elite player's golf swing, as the club is heading away from the ball, very, very soon, because I used to think the same, what you described is exactly what I used to think this golf swing was. I move all my weight to the right, and then to hit the ball, I move all my weight to the left, which is why I spent the uh, better part of my life pull-hooking the shit out of everything. When in actual fact, better players, elite players, you can see it on whatever that measurement device is called. Uh, body track? Body track's one of those. But yeah. what, what, what really was a bit of a technical epiphany for me, and, and just what you described, is this. It's how quickly all your weight goes to your right. It doesn't happen at the top of your backswing. It happens in good players. And, you know, if you don't believe me, go look at it. Um, it happens in the first shift as you take the, as the ball, as the club leaves the ball at about, even before shaft half, like, you know, um, when the shaft is parallel, not your left arm is parallel. When the yep. shaft is parallel, you'll see about 70% is shifted already to the right. And what happens is as your arms go up, it's when the shift or the drift or the surf, exactly. as your arms are going up, your weight's going left, which is why you've heard people say you're kind of going in two directions at the same time. What most of us don't grasp is the sequence of that, because we mostly think what you said. We think our arms go this way. And then we all go that way, but it's not. The separation comes, and you see it really early in good players, is as soon as they start their swing, they've shifted almost all their weight to the right. But as they raise their arms, it's already starting to drift back. And that's why those young kids, 
they they drift back and and go into the ground and as they turn they pop up because they've already set their weight left mm-hmm. but hogan was the first one to sort of describe that i would put to you that all golf swings forever have produced a similar motion because that's really the essence of the swing it's what most of us don't do yeah well, which is really why we're, too, why is we're doing a golf podcast what, what people would talk about uh remember the stack and tilt oh yeah well I remember I remember lord Roofsey again he's he said that bob panisic called it the stack and plunge uh, my buddy paul heinrich <laughs> calls it the stack and wilt <laughs> there you go so people would they refer back to hogan on that piece around how he would, it looked at, that he would preload his left side as he was going back. But um, yeah, part of the, I, you know, I, when I was writing that book, I was, oh yes, salvation. I will now become the greatest golfer <laughs> in the Tri City area. That's and right. I, and, and well, nope. <laughs> Again, it was like, okay. I went, well, salvation is from technical knowledge, yeah. and now I have a greater understanding of the ideal golf swing. Therefore, I will rock. Hmm. Well, it kind of ties in a little bit with Sarno's book. Salvation, you think, is going to come from going to get your elbow rubbed or your back yeah. you know, lasered, but in actual fact, a lot of the pain we produce physically comes from an unconscious place. Um, that we think we can consciously override with our perfectionist kind of, you know, vibe. Um, Timothy, I want to say sincerely to you, uh, all congratulations to you for this Thanks, uh, wonderful award. Uh, deservedly so. Uh, find out more at O'ConnorGolf.ca. Uh, we're going to do a couple. I guess we're going to do a show this week. I'll put it out as soon as we get done. And then um, we'll do another one next week. Then I'm gone for a couple of weeks. And then after that, it's March. And soon, uh, real golf season begins. I know. I was thinking about that today. We just got largely February and March. And you know, April is usually kind of sloppy. But at least we got hope. We have Masters. It ain't too long, man. Nope. Not too long. In fact, um Trying to think when next Thursday I uh, speaking of the GAO next uh, see the sixth next Thursday February sixth um, and they've already put out the schedule uh, that's when all the uh, tournament uh, you can sign up for all the tournaments so next Thursday I'll be able to sort of plan out all the tournaments I'm going to play all the way from I think the first qualifier is uh, around the time you're inducted around May sixth May fifth. And the last tournament I have scheduled will be the 16th or 17th of September. So, Cool. So are you and uh, Charles Fitzsimmons going to play in the better ball? And Me and Big Chuck. Uh, I talked to him a couple weeks ago. Uh, actually, Great. by the time we qualify for the better ball, it's going to be Dr. Chuck. Because oh, he's, cool. uh, he's put in his uh, thesis. He's, put, he's got to defend it, I think, this month or next. And then he'll, be, uh, he'll get his Ph.D., and he'll be Dr. Charles Fitzsimmons. We'll, we'll have to get the good doctor back on yeah, the yeah. podcast. I'd love to talk about what his thesis focused on and what went into defending it and You'll love how it, it applies you, to this game of golf. You know what his thesis is? Using humor. Uh, using humor in sports. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's very and I just I so get that with that dude. I mean he's just he just carries himself in such a he's this big dude. But he carries himself in a light way. Yeah, he's a very light human being, unlike myself. Uh, Timmy, 
congratulations. Thanks, uh, man. Do, do you have a second when we're done here? Because I got I think I was, there was something I wanted to ask you that was for off the podcast. Um, yes, I. Uh, that's 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 our own private podcast. Our right? own private Idaho. Okay, my friend. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, of course, you can uh, catch more of the uh, Humble and Fred show at humbleandfredradio.com, Canada's most uploaded podcast in history. Recently, in the top 20 in Bermuda, for some reason. Uh, reasons I can't. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll see you all next week. Sound on the river, you stop and you hold everything.